This has been a rich morning so far. We get to hear from Brad and Sue a little bit after this. We get to enjoy a picnic together, and it is nice to have uh, just activity to think about and to reflect on and to be grateful for. And I want to talk a moment about youth camp as well, but I want to talk about it in a way that I am speaking to the thing about youth camp that you really don't want to talk about. And that's that you came to youth camp terrified what people were going to think about you. On some level, you went to camp knowing our theme is we're going to talk about God, how God is holy, how God is gracious, how God is worthy, right? You knew our theme was he is these things, and therefore I am these things. God is holy, then I'm to be undone. If God is gracious, then I need to be aware that I'm forgiven. If God is worthy, then I need to be propelled into the world in his service. We know the order of those things, but we get so concerned about how people see us, don't we? We worry, just as some of the kids have talked about. We worry, and aren't we grateful, adults, that that's something we put away when we got out of high school? right? Isn't it nice that that's their problem, all you in the t-shirts? The rest of us in the button-downs, you know, we're doing pretty well. If only, right? So weird, we can come to magnify God and want to be magnified in the process. We can come being very aware that we're to take our marching orders from the king, and yet we want to be out in the front of the line. And in fact, as Lenny was reading this passage, um, what you might not be aware of is that what happened right before that starts in actually chapter 9, verse 30. Let me read that to you. It says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Verse 33, then. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you talking about on the way? But they were quiet because they had argued about who was the greatest. And so he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he needs to be last and the servant of all. Now, for those of you who have been tracking with us through Mark, that might feel kind of familiar. And in fact, if you have your Bible open and you look, you might see that it says something about, before verse 30, like Jesus announces his death like the second time. And that's because it is the second time. If you remember back in chapter 8, verse 31, we read the following. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And you remember Peter's wonderful moment, right? He had just had a wonderful moment. Who do people say, I am? Oh, you're the Christ. Then he tells them this, and then Peter decides he needs to correct the Messiah, rebuking him. That didn't go well for Peter. But then we read Jesus called the crowds and said, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see the pattern? Chapter 8, Jesus does a profound 
a sort of role reversal in terms of the way they understand what the Messiah is going to do on the planet. They think Messiah will come to conquer, and Jesus says, no, the Messiah will come to be killed. Peter doesn't like that first time, chapter 8. Here we are again in chapter 9, and we read kind of the same thing. Jesus, probably like I said, heading in your Bible, the second time tells them, let me help you understand the mission of the Son of Man. Talking about me. We got that. Okay. He's going to come to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Right after that, what happens? Again, profound misunderstanding, almost refusal of the disciples to believe what Jesus has just said. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. And so Jesus gives them one of those paradigm-shifting summaries. Really, you want to be first? All right, way to be first is to be last. The way to be first is to make sure you serve everybody in front of you in the line. It would be great if chapter 9 was the only second time and the last time Jesus would have to repeat himself, but... Spoiler, chapter 10, we're going to read the following. Taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, or we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests of the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And then there's another moment that comes up showing the disciples profound ineptitude or refusal, hard to tell exactly which, to believe and to accept what Jesus is saying because they want to be great. And so Jesus, again, sort of a pithy statement, summary kind of nugget of the truth. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Why do we do this, guys? We come to magnify Jesus week after week. Yes, this feels like a special week, but it doesn't matter. We come to magnify Jesus week after week, and then we leave here and we spend the rest of the time trying to magnify ourselves. You guys knew what youth camp was going to be about. It was going to be about God first, and you came with your own internal agenda for your own greatness. And if we talked really about wanting to be great, you might sort of back off and say, all right, every time I want to be great, I get it. It is corrupt. It is spoiled. It is shot through with my sin. I should never want to be great again. But the thing is that Jesus doesn't actually say that, does he? Jesus actually doesn't say, I don't want you to be great. He actually does encourage this greatness among his followers. He wants them to be great disciples. The question, though, is how to be a great disciple. See, at youth camp, we wanted you to understand that God's holy. Therefore, something changes inside of me because of who he is. God is gracious. Therefore, I reorient myself to my failures. God is worthy. Therefore, my whole life's agenda is now reoriented around him and not me. But that's not just a youth camp theme, guys. We're just, we're just letting you in on the fact that life is this way. This is what always poisons the possibility of us being great. What makes a great believer, a great marriage, a great family, a great church, a great group of friends? What makes a great school or a great company? You could get a whole mess of metrics that are designed to figure out how to be great in this world, and Jesus is giving you the only one that matters. 
the only thing that matters is to take chapter 8 and 9 and 10 together would be to not be so inclined to worry about whether I'm being seen as great by others and evaluated by their metrics, which usually have something to do with more, right? More influence, more money, more significance. And instead, to make sure that I'm using it to be great because what Jesus has essentially said is, I'm coming as the great one, and it's going to lead to my death. Now, what, how are you going to live in light of that? And if we live saying that Jesus, yeah, that's what he did, but I'm going to do something entirely different. He served, I'm not going to. He gave up his rights, I'm going to ensure that all mine are achieved in life. Then we're basically looking at Jesus' life and saying, well, what a waste. Don't live like him, live like me. And there's nothing great about that. But there are two main temptations, two main kind of moments that we encounter in life when this possibility of being around somebody and like sort of using them and working with them to establish the greatness of God, which makes us great, is there, or we use them in order to establish our own greatness, which is not so great. That's the way to lose our lives. That's the way to make sure that we've wasted our lives. That's to be the way to be ungreat. And so the, the way I just want to get us thinking about this right out of the gate is this first question. In what ways are you most inclined to use your time, your talent, your relationships to ensure that people see you as successful and significant? Now, that's not one I can answer for you, but it is the question I need you to answer before we keep going. What's your gig? What's your way? Because you're not going to hear a lick of the rest of what God is going to sort of address us with from his word if the way you're thinking about this is, I know who the people are that try to do this, and you've got somebody, maybe a name, maybe a face, maybe sort of just a stereotype in your mind. But the thing that you easily do is you form that stereotype as something you're not, therefore you're innocent and they're guilty. And we can spend the rest of this message thinking about their problems. And that's just, that's not so great. But let's be great. Let's aim at greatness that magnifies Christ by asking this question first. What's your way of trying to make sure that people see you as successful and significant that robs you of being able to magnify Christ and make him great? What do you do? Are you a complainer? You, you, you know how complainers do this? They find ways, and usually like-minded people, who can, with them, kind of find something to complain about and sort of in pressing them down, their belief is that they get exalted because now they're discerning the problems of life and they're just figuring out. And that just sort of elevates their greatness. Maybe you're a little bit more bold about it and you're just really good at self-promotion. One of the things I've talked to the church about many times and sadly sinned against many in our church in doing so is my tendency to interrupt people. It's my way sort of letting people know that what I'm saying right now is more important than what you're saying right now. It's, it's ugly. It's not something I want to continue in, but boy, it seems to cripple me time and time again. Point is, we've got a way. And if you can identify that way, 
then what I want to do is kind of take that answer to this question and recognize that there are two main moments, two main contexts in life in which we sort of either use the people around us to establish our greatness or we become great in emulating Christ in the way we treat them. The first is the group of children in our lives or those that are under our care. Now, just so you know, we have been announcing for a while that we need help in children's ministry. And if one of the application points that comes out of this message is you find that you have thought yourself far above that ministry and coming out of this, you're a little bit more inspired to care for the children of our church, well, then Ashley won't mind because she'll like having a few more subs. But that's not my main goal. My main goal is in looking at this, is what I hope is Jesus' main goal. And that's to help us recognize that what he says in verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. In other words, to be truly great, you can't push your way to the front of the line. You have to take your place at the back of the line so that you can see the needs of others and serve them. That can be established by asking the question of who do I get to care for? And the way Jesus does that happens in verse 36. It says, verse 36, he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, like I said, I'm not trying to mainly push, we need children's ministry teachers, but doesn't that verse on its own just reinvent children's ministry? You want to meet God, be close to God, and embrace God? Embrace the little children of this church And Jesus says, here's what will happen. You think you're taking this child under your wing. You think you're caring for this little one. But in the process of you embracing and receiving them, you are embracing and receiving me. And in the process of getting closer to me, you are actually embracing and receiving God's care for you. What a massive turn. Because children are not viewed in the day that this is being written Children are not viewed the way that they are today in our country. There's been a lot of heat placed on Christians. A lot of questions asked, particularly in the atheistic spheres. Have Christians done good for the world? And I'll just tell you one way that it's obvious that Christianity has shaped our country in particular and our broader culture for the positive, that children were seen, particularly in the first century, as commodities to be used or disposed of at their pleasure. I'll give you an example. Paul says this in Romans chapter 2. He's talking to the Jews, thinking that the Jews are thinking of themselves as superior because they've got this teaching role, so to speak, in society. And he says, but if you call yourself a Jew, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law and embodiment of knowledge and truth. You see what he's done there? He's, he's made pa- parallel statements in order to say something about these children. Notice that the parallels about the children are not how precious they are. 
Not how adorable they are. And not how, according to Disney, every impulse that they have inside them is always good and pure and to be followed. It's instead that they are dark, blind, and foolish. Kids are dumb. They're just flat-out dumb. Sorry, welcome to our kids, particularly the Baker relatives, who I'm sure have been absolved of these characteristics. But this is the first century view of kids. They're commodities and primarily problematic commodities. Just like we've seen in this society the way that the crippled and the lame and the blind are treated and disposed of because of their weakness, there's a certain sense in which children were viewed that way in this same day. And so if we thought about kids not just the way we think about kids, right? but we thought about kids the way that the first century thought about kids, then you recognize that children are placed more in the category that we might even think of where Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. Chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, God doesn't want a people so filled with their own importance, so set on congratulating themselves all the time so that everybody can be impressed with them. That's, that's not the community God wants to build. Instead, he wants to build from the low, despised, weak, and foolish. And that's not just Paul's idea later on interpreting Jesus' ministry. That seems to be the very point Jesus is making when he's talking to the disciples who are saying, yeah, so... Which of us is best? I mean, if you had to rank us. Now, if you take this in context, and you remember kind of where we've been in Mark, the disciples haven't been having a really good time so far, right? Their best, probably, and brightest star, Peter, was just told to be influenced and potentially sort of like dictating the notes for Satan himself. So not a good moment for Peter. And rather than the disciples worrying so much about, you know, like, how similar they were to Peter. It seems as though some of them saw that as an opportunity. Wow, Peter's been knocked down off the top rung. Which of us can take his place? And so when Jesus is saying, I have come in order to suffer, be rejected, and to die, the way that the disciples have heard that is, well, that's giving us an opportunity to shine, right? It, it's such backwards thinking. The disciples are not particularly doing well coming into this moment Jesus is recognizing, now the second time I've told you plainly what's going to happen to me, and you're so worried about where you stand in the other people's eyes. And so he says, all right, guys, let's sit down. Huddle up. I want to talk to you about how to be great. And on one hand, they're like, okay, well, let's take some notes on this. I said, see this rather insignificant child, this dark, foolish, blind child. This problematic child. And he takes the child, verse 36, and having then put him kind of into the center of their group, it says he takes him in his arms, which is four words in in our, well, five words. Taking him in his arms 
But in Greek, it's, it's one. He's embracing him. He's holding him. He's taking this child and saying, I want to show you what it means to be great. It's that you take the problem people of your life and you hold and care for them. That's what it means to be great. See, this is why I don't want the only application point off of this to be about children's ministry because honestly, some of you love children's ministry and you wouldn't be hearing anything then. All of you have got somebody who annoys you. All of you have got somebody who, when they text, call, show up in your life, whenever they seem to sort of land on your doorstep, you mainly think of them as foolish, weak, low, or despised. Somebody who would have absolutely no right to boast because there's just not much in their life to brag about. Maybe they've offended you. Maybe they have like more than just sort of been problematic and weak. They've actually sinned against you and ignorantly sinned against you. And so they've caused more problems for you. These are, these are the weak ones in your life. And God says what you do with them determines your greatness. And what he's asked you to do is to receive them or if we took it a little bit more, to embrace them, to let them know they're so important that you bring them into the center of your world and you let them and others know that they're worth your care. Jesus says, to be great, we are to focus on the children in our lives and those we are caring for in our lives. So second question. What steps could you take this week, this month, this year to intentionally create ways to receive into your life and under your care those that you deem inferior to you? The good news about being part of this church and the good news about us knowing each other in this church You've actually got a lot of good examples. Stick around afterwards. Listen to Brad and Sue. Because they'll talk about the rewards of having been faithful to each other for 50 years and probably some of the mercy that it's cost them to show each other honor over those 50 years. They'll show you pictures of their growing family and the pride that they have in all of them, and yet... Probably if you sat down over a hot dog or a hamburger later at the picnic and asked them a little bit, was it always easy? If they were lying to you, or if they were trying to, you know, undermine my point right now, they'd say, yes, it was always easy. (laughs) But I know their story a little bit, and it wasn't always easy, despite the fact that, you know, these ones were always easy. It was all the others that I'm talking about. As you get the point... The point is, if you want to be great and you want to exalt the great one, then when you have sort of deemed other people, not sort of, when you have deliberately deemed other people to be less significant, God is asking you to take that moment and that relationship and pour your care into them. That's if we want to be great. But the second way, the second kind of 
context that Jesus highlights actually doesn't come because Jesus intentionally groups people together and brings them in. Mark instead tells us what happens next and lets us know there was another group that really became pretty significant here that Jesus wanted to draw their attention to. And it happened in verse 38 when John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, for those of you who haven't been with us for a little bit, we just had a moment where the disciples were trying to cast a demon out. They were just trying to deliver a boy from his oppression, and they failed, and they failed miserably. So much so that when the father of the child came to Jesus, he had to be able to say to them, this didn't work. I just brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't do it. Jesus was able to, but the disciples failed. And what's happened now? Somebody not in their peer group, somebody not under their name, somebody not one of the 12, he's out there casting out demons successfully using Jesus' name. And John says, don't worry, Jesus, I took care of a mess that was going on out there. He was using your name in order to do good. Can you believe it? And Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. And then Jesus moves from that moment into the principle. And he says, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This sort of puts into perspective that other moment in which our greatness is called into question. Because it's not just the children in our lives, it's also the rivals in our lives that really can be the moment that rob us from true greatness. The disciples aren't just thinking about those who are under their care. In this particular moment, John is thinking about who's on our side, who's on our team, who follows our brand, who has the particular expression of allegiance to the kingdom of God that we've rallied around. And it's a good thing, again, that we can't relate to this tendency, isn't it? No, one of the great things about youth camp is that we, from different teams, different churches, We all get to pull together in the same direction. It's a reminder of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying your rivalries don't matter at all. In fact, they make you look petty. You think that putting down somebody else, drawing lines between you and them makes you look greater. It it, it doesn't at all. Your greatness is actually demonstrated not just by whom you care for, but who you view to be kind of on your side together. Listen to J.C. Rao. This quote really helped me as I was trying to resonate with this moment here. He said about this feeling that John had, let us be on our guard against this feeling. It is only too near the surface in all our hearts. Let us study to realize that liberal, tolerant spirit which Jesus here recommends and be thankful for good works wheresoever and by whosoever done. Let us beware of the slightest inclination to stop and check others merely because they do not choose to adopt our plans or to work by our side. But all this must not prevent us from rejoicing when the works of the devil are destroyed and souls saved. That's J.C. Ryle. He was talking about it 
a little bit more from the perspective of kind of this big danger that we all have. But Paul spoke about it in a really personal way at one point. Paul was imprisoned. That's why when we read in Philippians, what I'm about to read for you, it's, it's from what was called the prison epistles. He was writing to churches while he was in prison, and you can imagine how that wasn't really a resume builder for Paul. It didn't really look like the point of a successful pastor whenever you're, you're getting a letter from prison. And other people had taken that opportunity to sort of step on Paul in order to build themselves up. And Paul was relating that temptation and that burden in chapter 1 and said, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here, prison, for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So what then? If I'm one of those Philippians who loves Paul, I'm like, let's get him! That's not right! And it's not. But Paul says, what then? Well, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed And so in that, I rejoice. I love that example. Who knows whether that example was what was on J.C. Ryle's minds, where at the end of that quote, he said, all this must not prevent us from rejoicing when the works of the devil are destroyed and souls saved. And I'm so petty, guys. I hate this about myself. I do. In the midst of our our history and our story, there are moments I really like hearing what's going on. And I gotta be honest, sometimes when I hear good news from other churches, there's something petty inside of me that arises. I ask questions, sometimes about me, sometimes about them, sometimes just about God. Like, what are you doing? Why can't that be part of our story? And then I read J.C. Rowe, I read Paul, and I'm like, shut up, Taryn. What am I I doing? God is accomplishing good things through his people in our midst. Let me tell you four of them, trying to repent. I emailed four pastors and just asked, could you tell me what's going on in your church? Something where you see God at work. One pastor wrote, thanks for asking. When Joy and I arrived in Dayton, this is Sovereign Grace Church down in Dayton, When Joy and I arrived in Dayton almost nine years ago, the church was very divided. There were two distinct visions for the church. One was to have a church in more of a small town, rural setting. The other, more urban. The thought was always at the beginning to probably end up having two different churches in two different places. But over the last number of years, the Lord has done a work of of unifying vision that when we were provided a building in a more downtown Dayton location, 100% of the people were excited and on board with it. Our first Sunday is upon us, and we rejoice in what the Lord has done and is doing. Let's take a minute. Let's pray for that. Father, we're so grateful for what you have done in Dayton. We're so grateful for the way that you've worked with Steve and with Kale and with their church. And we're grateful for this building that you've provided them. Lord, I see the struggle of ours. I know our brothers and sisters from Akron think of the struggle of theirs. And yet to hear about the building you provided for them at the price that you provided for, for them and to realize the boost that you've given to them. Lord, we, we rejoice that you have done this. More than that, we rejoice in the unity that you have provided for them in this church. 
for the way that you've knit together what felt like two very different factions and have given them a burden to all move together in the same building. Thank you, Lord. Another man wrote, Hey, thanks for asking. Mostly on our mind is the encouragement of the baptisms that we are doing on this Sunday. This is Parkside Lakewood, up a little north of us. People are young and old, newer and older Christians. God willing, we'll be dunking them in Lake Erie while you're preaching. We've got uh, some other things bubbling in missions, both domestically and internationally, that has our prayerful attention and interest. How cool is that? A church that has rallied together, that, as I talked to Matt, has seen so much in-and-out kind of traffic just because of the sort of the hub that Lakewood is. And yet here we've got folks that are looking to build in, make commitments, and really be able to enjoy this morning. So let's pray that the Lord would do that for them. Father, we're grateful for Matt, for the team there around him, for the congregation that you've raised as this plant from Parkside, uh, the main hub. Lord, thank you for this work you're doing in Lakewood. Thank you for the way that you have given them courage in an area that really doesn't want a church that stands for what they stand for. Thank you that you've given vitality to a group of people. You've given a building to them, and today you're giving them this shared experience there in Erie. Lord, we pray that this would be an encouraging moment for the church. We rejoice in the work that you're doing. We're grateful for it. In Jesus' name, amen. And another, uh, speaking of Grace Church, both their two campuses, he said, they have a great youth group that's bearing fruit. We've seen a number of conversions amongst teens. They have really great youth pastors, empty nest adults who volunteer as beer mentors, and two retreats a year that are really impactful. There's Mike's new goal for our youth group, right? <laughs> I don't know if you do that, but that's the kind of thing that happens inside me. I hear this and I think, wow, that, I'm a little jealous. But that's really exciting, but I'm a little jealous, but that's really exciting, and since it's really exciting, let's, let's pray for them. Father, I thank you for this report from Eric of what's happening at Grace. Thank you for the work that you're doing in saving their teens, for the, the galvanizing effort to see this new generation live for you, to love you, and to serve alongside the older, and to look as they set an example for the younger coming behind them. Father, we pray your blessing on this group and on the church in their two locations. In Jesus' name. Lastly, this is, uh, this is from uh, Chris Hinckley at Olmstead Falls Baptist. He, from vacation, sent this to us. He said, We had the joy of partnering with Mercy Hill, a Ukrainian fellowship in Parma, and are bringing two families from a church in Kiev to Parma to escape the war. We were able to significantly fund this effort, and by the grace of God, the families are thriving. The kids are in school. The parents are finding jobs and a place to live. We're thankful for our fellowship with, I'm not sure I'm going to say his name right, Ihor and Oleg at Mercy Hill. Known them for about 20 years. What a great work of God there at Olmsted Falls and at Mercy Hill. So let's pray for those churches now. Father, we're grateful for the way that you knit together two very different congregations in Mercy Hill and in Olmstead Falls Bible Church. Lord, thank you for the way that you've worked in Chris and in 
uh, Ihor and in Olek, the way that you've given uh, unity around the gospel between those brothers. I thank you for that network and for this partnership. Father, we pray for the families that are coming over. We pray that you would knit them in, and Lord, we pray that you would continue to do these kinds of works in them, in Grace, in Parkside, Lord, and in Dayton. Father, we rejoice that you're at work in the great work you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I admit in these testimonies, this may not be exactly the context you're thinking of, right? I'm the guy here at the pulpit, so this is probably the world I live in a little bit more. But it is interesting, isn't it, how much our brand, our people, our little group, our sense of the clique of the peer group that we're in can be so important to us. And again, I'm only talking to the teenagers because we adults, we figure this stuff out, right? Why is it that that happens? It's so easy to interpret that impulse as though we're victims of something, right? Jesus just doesn't give us that freedom. Instead, he says, why you are, the reason you are so worried about who's on your side, the reason that you're so uh, willing, again, uh, to just not guard against this feeling. Sorry, I know I sound like I'm really emotional about this. It's just that's the timer that my body sets on when the sermon should probably be ending. (laughs) (coughs) So you can be grateful for that. Guys, I just think we want to be great, primarily in that we want to be seen as great. And so Jesus says, pay attention who you care for and pay attention who you surround yourself with because those moments lie to you. You want to use them so that other people see you as significant and successful. You want to use them so that other people see you as great. And he's saying, that's not the way I lived. That's not what I did. And so if you find yourself like John, wanting to kind of ostracize people out just because they don't kind of fit your brand? Or if you find yourself like the disciples wanting to be able to sort of dismiss those that are weak and insignificant, let's remember Jesus didn't do that with us. And aren't we grateful? Because not many of you were noble. Not many of you were powerful, rich, or all that popular. But we're here because he loved you. Last question I want to ask is, what attitudes then would you have to begin to despise and repent of so that God could cultivate a heart that rejoices at the successes of others? Those are three tough questions. And they may not be as tough for you as they are for me, but they're ones I'm going to be thinking about over this next week. Before we return back in worship, though, it's, there are questions that I'd like you to, uh, to ask yourself again. So can we just have them one more time, Jace? Can you find those three questions sort of in the middle there? The first question, in what ways are you most inclined to use your time, talent, and relationships to ensure that people see you as a successful and significant person? The second question What steps could you take to intentionally create ways to receive into your life and under your care those whom you deem inferior to you? And the last question, what attitudes would you have to begin to despise and repent of 
so that God could cultivate a heart that rejoices at the successes of others. Let's take just a couple minutes. Let me pray for us, and we'll just take a couple minutes to reflect over those, and then when Keith thinks we're ready, he'll, he'll uh, return back for worship. So, Father, we repent. This whole idea of being seen and perceived as great is paralyzing for us sometimes. We don't want it to be anymore. We want to be marked by a real humility. But also, we want to be marked by the patterns that dominated Jesus when he was here on the earth. Patterns to serve, patterns to willingly be rejected in order to accomplish good that we desperately couldn't accomplish on our own. Lord, if Jesus came to die, we want to be willing to walk that path as well. If Jesus came to suffer, if Jesus came to endure rejection, Lord, I pray that you would help us Lord, to embrace those moments, to embrace the weak, and to rejoice, Lord, when you're doing good in others. Meet us now, Lord. Search us, know us. See if there be any wayward ways in us. And then lead us in a path towards life. Let's take a moment to reflect.